Has it ever occurred to you that every major religion believes in angels? Is it any wonder that scripture delivered a warning to the first century church that if an angel from heaven delivered a gospel contrary to the gospel delivered by the apostles, that that church was to consider the messenger accursed, Galatians 1.9. It's interesting to me as I've read that text again that Paul does not rule out the possibility of an angel delivering the gospel. He doesn't say, oh, that'll never happen, don't worry about it. No, his point assumes the possibility. And, and what he does do is warn the believer that if an angel comes and delivers a different gospel, don't listen. In other words, you would know that it is wrong, not because an angel is delivering it. You know it's wrong because an angel is delivering another gospel. And you evaluate the meaning of the gospel. What a needed warning today. You study the major religions of the world and you'll discover many of them base their foundational beliefs on messages from angels. The history of Islam traces its roots to their great prophet Muhammad receiving his call from the angel Gabriel, receiving instruction from Gabriel about what to teach his followers as the prophet of God. Uh, He would follow uh, what he received from Gabriel, this information he would recite to his followers, but it is a different gospel. The prophecies of Muhammad effectively demoted Jesus to being one of only six Merely six prophets, the last one, of course, being Muhammad. To further reveal the differences between Muhammad's gospel and the gospel of Christ, Muhammad taught that Christ did not die on the cross to atone for the sins of mankind. In fact, it was Judas who died on the cross instead of Christ. According to Islam, your hope for heaven is in being a faithful Muslim, following the articles of faith and the five pillars of faith which will allow you to earn your way into their version of heaven. The angel of Islam preaches a different, another gospel. Buddhism is another world religion in tune with voices from the spirit world, effectively teaching you to find salvation in yourself. It also is a different gospel. In one of his final messages, the dying Buddha was instructing a young monk and others as he gave his parting advice, which immediately would be understood as tragic by the believer in the gospel of Christ. And I quote him, he said, I am old now. My journey nears its end. I've reached my sum of days. I'm 80 years old. You, speaking to his followers, must be your own lamp. You must be your own refuge. Take refuge in nothing outside yourselves. Hold firm to this truth as a lamp and a refuge and do not look for refuge to anything or anyone besides yourselves. Conquer the cravings and depressions of ordinary men. Whoever among you, speaking specifically to my monks, does this either now or when I am dead, if he is anxious to learn this, he will reach the summit Whatever you do, don't look for salvation anywhere else but within. This is another gospel. A different gospel. One of the world's fastest growing religions is Mormonism, although it's slowed down quite a bit in the last decade. They believe that Elohim and their gospel came to the planet, 
had relations with Mary so that Jesus could be given a physical body and the plan of salvation begin. Jesus grew up. He married uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha. After his death and resurrection, he came to the Americas and preached to the Indians, who Mormonism believes are the lost tribes of Israel. By the way, this particular belief has created quite a problem because of the discovery of DNA, which is having a bit of a problem connecting Native American Indians to Jewish people. No matter, it's a minor point, they say. According to their gospel, the last living follower of Jesus recorded God's plan of salvation by writing it on golden plates in ancient Egyptian symbols. For 1,400 years, they lay undiscovered until a direct descendant of Jesus and his wives by the name of Joseph Smith discovered the tablets and with the help of an angel from heaven translated them, delivering this gospel, what they believed to be the completed gospel. And in the completed gospel, faithful Mormons will one day inhabit their own planets and live as polygamous gods spawning races for all of eternity. Ladies and gentlemen, that is another gospel. So in just these three religions, angels are involved. Spirit guides have influenced the lives of millions of people around the world. And evidently, these angels from heaven aren't really communicating very well with each other because they're delivering conflicting, contradictory versions of the gospel. Joseph Fielding Smith, one of the presidents of the church, Mormon church in his past, named after its founder, wrote, and I quote, There is no salvation without accepting Joseph Smith. No man can reject his testimony without incurring the most dreadful consequences. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is another gospel. Decide which gospel you will place your faith in, believing it will take you to heaven. Exercise faith. It will require faith with either angel that you listen to. The apostles taught there is salvation in no one else other than Christ, Acts 4.12. This is the gospel which we hold to and believe by faith. The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. It's a, simply, it means good news. It can mean tidings. It's a word that references a message. The first century of the apostles knew well the use of the word gospel as, as good news. We have illustrations, centuries old, tying the word to religions. Uh, even more than that, we can see throughout history how uh, the enemy of the gospel of Christ counterfeits and deceives by using phraseology and terminology to deliver another gospel. Archaeologists, as one illustration, found a white stone or a stell upon which was delivered a message, the gospel. In fact, the word gospel is used. It, it was in reference to Caesar Augustus. It was written about 27, 30, 32 years before the, the birth of Christ. It was nothing more than political propaganda which celebrated the glory of the first emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. Listen to the phraseology written on this, carved into this stone. The edict said, 
delivered this message that God had sent Caesar Augustus to earth to be a savior. So tear, same word used of Christ. His coming to earth brought peace. His birth was said to be the beginning of life and breath. His honor, it said, was to last forever. And then the edict closed by saying that the birthday of Augustus, quote, was the beginning for the world of the gospel. The good news. No wonder when Paul and John proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, their message faced immediate conflict. Their gospel was different from the gospel of Rome. And those who delivered it in those early centuries especially would pay with their lives. The word gospel will appear one time in the book of Revelation. And right in the middle of that word, euangelion, we get our word evangelism. Right in the middle of that word is the word angel. The gospel is a message, and angels, the word simply means messenger, delivering the tidings. In fact, the Greeks used the word evangel like we use the word evangelist. They would talk about children who delivered a message. Women, uh, slaves, animals, people, ambassadors were angels. And they would use the word for them because they carried a message. In fact, when the runner brought the good tidings that Athens had defeated the Persians and he ran from Marathon to Athens and delivered the tidings, they said that, that he was an angel. He was simply bearing a message. Angels are indeed messengers, even angels who appear in the scriptures, obviously. Just do a quick review. In Daniel, an angel delivers a message, Daniel 8, to the priest and father of, of uh, John the baptizer, Luke chapter 1, an angel delivers a message to both Joseph and Mary. In Matthew chapters 1 and 2, angels deliver messages. Angels brought messages to the shepherds in Luke 2, to Philip in Acts Eight to the women outside Christ's empty tomb in Matthew 28 and to Paul in Acts chapter 27. And we discover, as we already have in our exposition through the book of Revelation, angels have a, have a great part to play in end times. In the gospel account where Christ is talking about the end times, he informs us that angels will, will gather the unbelieving world, corralling them all for judgment. Matthew 13. They will also gather uh, the believers for glory. Matthew 24. They accompany the Lord Jesus when he returns to earth in triumph. Matthew 25. And they initiate disasters upon the earth, as we've seen already in Revelation chapter 8. And now as John, the apostle, records this preview of even more things to come and gives us sort of an aerial view of things that will take us right into the kingdom. He delivers to us his, his vision of three angels, a trio of angels who deliver a message. The first angel delivers the message of creationism. The second angel delivers the message or the gospel of consummation. And the third angel delivers the message of condemnation. And God is effectively, graciously offering sinners worldwide one more opportunity to repent before the final judgment of his wrath. 
Let's discover where that word is used and why as we go back and rejoin our study in Revelation chapter 14 and we pick it up at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. Now stop, where's that? Well, the Greek word refers to that point in the sky where the sun stands, as it were, at high noon. In other words, nobody can miss him. He's high enough, though, the Antichrist can't shoot him down. Nobody can touch him. And I imagine in my mind as this angel, now at high noon, literally circles the globe, millions of people will pour out of their homes and out of buildings into streets and fields to watch and to listen as this angel delivers a rather interesting message. Now remember, and I know you want to get on with the text, but just for a moment, remember that by this time in the tribulation, the world has seen its share of travesties and and disasters and miracles. Uh, The Antichrist has been brought back to life by this time. Uh, He is demanding now that the world take his mark, the sum of his name, 666. All of the world won't. All of the world hasn't and won't have an opportunity to, but he's pushing for for this agenda. Uh, he's, He's wanting all to bow and give him glory. God is also pouring one judgment after another upon earth. Tidal waves, earthquakes, pestilences. One out of every four people have already at this point died on the planet. The world has run out of coffins. They can't keep up. If there was ever a time, and I say all that to say this. If there was ever a time when mankind would be ready to hear the gospel, it would be now. And so here comes an angel in the sky delivering the gospel. The first of three appears. You'll notice in the text, it tells us that this angel has an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. Now today, obviously the church is responsible for the proclamation of the gospel. But here in the tribulation period, the methods of God now shift. We have 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are uniquely gifted and enabled to preach the gospel. You have the two witnesses that can't be put to death until God so allows who deliver the gospel. You have those who certainly do believe the gospel message delivered by those evangelists who deliver the gospel to their friends and family. And now here you have an angel. Now I know and I I fully respect uh, Oswald Chambers and his wonderful devotional that sort of began this idea that an angel can't and doesn't preach the gospel. The problem I have is with the text of scripture that says an angel will preach the gospel. It is an everlasting gospel. The word is used that is used throughout the New Testament. This gospel, however, is not unique and it is not altered in any way. In fact, there are just nuances of the gospel that are used throughout the New Testament. This one is called an eternal gospel. That that means it's timeless. It's unchanged. It is the same gospel, in fact, that has been preached throughout human history. The elements are unchanging. Man is sinful. Man is in need of atonement. Man is in trouble with God. Man needs to be saved. In pre-Christ times, they looked toward the cross 
and the one who would come to suffer. From Adam to Isaiah, they were waiting for the suffering one upon whom the Father would place the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 6. They looked forward to having their sins fully atoned for by the Son of God. The ancient world looked forward to the cross, and we look back to the cross of Christ where he bore our sin in his body on the tree that we being dead to sin could live in a righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24. Listen, no matter where you go in the world, the intuitive understanding of guilt and sin is there in every human heart. The need for the gospel is apparent and real. And no matter where you go in the world, you find mankind trying to deal with the reality of sin, the stain of sin. I've watched people scrubbing themselves in the putrid water of the Ganges River. Hindu pilgrims believing that that river was a gift that dripped down from the locks of their god Shiva so that mortals could have their souls bathed and set free. Where do they come up with that desire? The Bible tells us that the law of God is written on their hearts. Mankind the world over intuitively understands the concept of some need for atonement. So the eternal gospel is not new and it is not somehow bound in one culture. It is the gospel of the Lamb, the merits of atonement. This one, we believe, is, as the Bible tells us, who paid in his death the sacrifice not only for our sins but the sins of the world, First John chapter 2, verse 2. This is the gospel and this is why we deliver the gospel to the world. The gospel has all sorts of nuances and viewpoints. It's called the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark 1, verse 1. The gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, 24. The gospel of God, Mark 1, 14. The gospel of the glory of Christ. That means now we're talking about the gospel and it happens to glorify Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. the gospel of salvation, Ephesians 1.13, the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15, and the glorious gospel, 1 Timothy 1.11. When you understand that the word means good tidings, he is saying now this good tidings happens to be timeless. It is eternal. This is then the eternally good news about Christ. The eternally good news about the grace of God. The eternally good news about the glory of Christ. The eternally good news about the true path to peace with God. And on and on and on. And here you have the gospel, John writes, being preached by an angel. And it is consistent with the gospel preached by Paul and the apostles. Now, notice verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. He tells mankind to do a couple of things. Fear God. Remember, this is in the middle of the tribulation where to turn to Christ would probably mean death. They would be afraid of the Antichrist. He's saying, don't be afraid of him. Don't fear him. Fear God. Jesus Christ would say, listen, don't fear the one who is able to 
temporarily hurt your body, fear the one that can bring great pain and torment to both body and soul in, in hell. Make your shift from fearing the Antichrist to fearing this holy, awesome God. Not only does the angel preach from the sky for mankind to fear God, but also to glorify God. Give him glory that is elevate him. The world, for the most part, is falling at the feet of the Antichrist. They're, they're deifying him. They're giving him honor. They're exalting his name. They're wearing it, many of them, on their right hand or on their forehead. Glorify God instead, the angel is saying. And what happens to be the one area where mankind throughout human history and in our generation has trouble glorifying God? Creation. In fact, that's the text. That's the theme, so to speak, of the angel. He happens to be worthy of worship. Why? Because he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. This is the gospel of creationism. It is the gospel that is tied to the creator God. Without a creator God, there is no gospel delivered to us. Anyone that will deliver a gospel outside of creationism is delivering a different gospel. And our generation is running after it like never before. There have always been theories of origins in our Western world over the last 150 years. It has been that promoted by Darwin in his theory of origins, his theory of evolution. And now more than ever, not only the world outside the church, but the church is honoring and bringing glory to him. In a unique way, it started, and many of you missed it, and I did too, but in February 2006... They decided there should be a special Sunday, marked Evolution Sunday, in honor of Darwin's birthday, which is in February, February 12th. Supporters said their religious services and sermons on evolution were designed. Can you imagine a sermon on evolution? What text would you use? (laughs) I guess the reversed version. Well, these services were planned, and I quote, to stand up to creationism, which holds to a literal interpretation of the Bible. I mean, somebody's just got to stand up to those people. As if we're the majority voice. Somebody stand up to him. In 2007, it was so wildly popular. If you can imagine it. They changed it from Evolution Sunday to Evolution Weekend. So that more, quote, faith systems, who don't care about Sunday, could play a part and a role. In February 2009, they celebrated again. We missed it. I just went right over my head. More than 12,000 ministers in America and churches participated, and over 400 rabbis participated. To do what? To honor the work of Darwin and his theory of origins over and against those who would take the scriptures literally. And I guarantee you, not one of those services had anything from Romans chapter 1 in their bulletin that day. Let me read it again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. What truth are you talking about in this text, Paul? Well, that which is known about God, 
is evident. For God made it evident to them. How? Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew that is intuitively about God, they did not glorify God. They did not give God glory for creating the universe and all there is. Listen, the Apostle Paul was writing this in the face of his culture, which was filled with evolutionary pantheists. This isn't new. The gospel in the first century was already confronting Buddhism, which had reached the Mediterranean world, teaching their own theories of evolution. The church was delivering Romans chapter 1 to a world of Stoics and Gnostics who disbelieved in a personal God and, and a special creation. They were the scholars of Paul's generation. So how important is creationism to the gospel? I'm so glad you asked me that. I want to give you three statements to answer it in honor of Darwin's birthday. <laughs> Number one, the credibility of Jesus Christ himself requires creationism. Is Jesus Christ wrong? Is it possible for him to be misinformed? Listen to what he said in Mark's gospel, chapter 10. But from the beginning, that is at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He did not say after millions of years after God created whatever started it all, male and female human beings finally evolved. No, he said at the beginning of creation, man and woman were created. And he wasn't saying that just because he happened to be around. No, John's gospel records it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I see you're reading the right translation. There, are, there is a translation that says, and the word was a God. And the word was God. If you miss it later on in the chapter, it'll say in the word tabernacled among us. That is, the word was Jesus Christ. He says in verse 2, closing every possible loophole, all things, how many? All things came into being Through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, Jesus Christ was not just casually present at creation. He was the creative agent in creation. So for those who might tell you that creation is only in Genesis and the rest of the Bible doesn't make a really big deal about it, my friend, the credibility of Christ's person and word and witness hangs upon it. Secondly, not only is that true, but the gospel of Christ is tied to creationism. There can be no mistaking this. Not only is the credibility of Christ tied to it, but but the gospel of Christ is tied to it. The apostle Paul said this to to the intelligentsia of his day. Listen, we preach the gospel to you. He's preaching to unbelievers. And he uses the same word that John uses in Revelation 14. We preach the gospel to you. What's the gospel, Paul? If you'd quit interrupting me, I'd tell you. Here it is, all right? We preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Acts 14, 15. Why should Paul's audience turn from their vain speculations and their own theories to a living God? I'll tell you why. Because he happens to be the creating agent of all there is. That's why. The gospel is connected to him being a creator. The creating God. And the world may not want to deal with creator God now, but it will deal with a creator God. He is unavoidable. Evolution eliminates the God of Genesis, but they've still got a problem because here he shows up again in the book of Revelation. You have him at the first book and you have him at the last book. Genesis reveals a God who created the human race. Revelation reveals he not only created, but he will judge the human race. So in light of that coming day, the angel preaches the gospel of repentance. In light of the fact that he's a creator, he says, you'd better fear him, reverence him, trust him, worship him. No one else is worthy. Can can you, and I'll get off this point in a second, but can you imagine the utter folly of a church honoring evolution? What, What utter folly is that? Is the church that lost? Is the church that bored with the gospel? Do we not have enough to honor and glorify our creator God 52 weeks out of the year? Listen, by the grace of God, our church will never have Evolution Sunday. We, we just choose to be that out of step. Okay, we're not even going to have Evolution Monday or Tuesday night. Not at all. We don't celebrate Evolution Sunday. We celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Amen? That's what we celebrate. We honor, we exalt, we worship Jesus Christ, our living Lord. And what you have to do, my friend, is decide which angel you're going to listen to. Which gospel you will follow. That's the first angel. I thought I'd get to all three, but I won't. Let me, let me at least get to the second one. Look at verse 8. And another angel... Here's the second one. This is the gospel of consummation. A second one followed saying, Fallen, fallen Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her, of her immorality. Now, we will table this for the most part until we get to Revelation chapter 17 where Babylon is revealed to us in the symbolism of mystery Babylon. But for now... Understand that Babylon, this is a categorical term for idolatry, I believe, among other things. Babylon was founded in Genesis chapter 10 by an idolater, an evil man named Nimrod. It became the site of the first organized system of idolatry in human history. They built the Tower of Babel or Babel. They built this tower, Genesis eleven four 4 says, whose top would reach into heaven. You can understand that Hebrew text a little better when you understand what he's saying is the top literally represented heaven. They weren't going to try to build it so tall. It just kept going. I used to imagine as a kid, you know, how many bricks it'd take to reach heaven. 
Well, a misinterpretation. Unfortunately, the Hebrew literally means it just the top represented heaven. The Babylonians developed the zodiac. They began to effectively bow before the movements of the stars. Planets believing their lives would be governed not by creator God, but by a created star. How popular is the religion of Nimrod today? Millions of people have their devotions in it every morning. Devoted to the horoscope, believing that their lives are somehow irreversibly affected by the sign and the movements. It is pagan religion. It is another gospel. Babylon was the first system of idolatry devised by mankind. Here's the fascinating point to consider. As humanity was united in its first idolatrous false religion at Babylon... So it will again be united in the end times under the name Babylon. History will come full circle. Fascinating. It starts with Babylon. It ends with this one world religion, idolatry in Babylon. But you notice that the angel speaks here of Babylon as if it has already fallen. Fallen Fallen. He speaks twice. It is emphasis and certainty that he is delivering in his message in this gospel tiding. Babylon has fallen. In fact, from his vantage point, it is as good as done. In other words, we know Babylon hasn't fallen yet. This is a preview of things to come. The pride of the Antichrist, the world system, Everybody under the title and term Babylon, the angel shouts from on high. The obituary of Babylon has already been written. Babylon has fallen, no matter what the stars might say. No matter how secure it seems, no matter how many millions say, this gospel is the true gospel. I remember touring one year from my Christian college while I was in college in a singing group. You got to use your imagination. I used to sing bass. Not very well, but they let me go along with them. When I went through that, I realized what God was doing because it was during that tour and I began to preach and wasn't the designated hitter, but yet the two guys that were supposed to be really didn't want to. We'd go to high school assemblies, Christian schools, two and three times a day. And as we traveled and preached and sang in 200 different churches and schools, and I got volunteered, and God began to use that to turn me from wanting to be a history teacher to becoming a pastor teacher. But I get to teach you history every chance I get. Okay? At any rate, we were out in California, and we took an afternoon to tour one of the major Hollywood film studios. If you knew anything about my Christian college, you would know why we didn't ask for permission to do that. Um, it's been long enough. I think I can confess that now and I'm safe. But we, we took a tour of a Hollywood film studio. And our tour included some amazing movie sets, trained animal demonstrations, 
stunt shows, behind-the-scenes look at how movies were made. Of course, we're going back a ways, but I'll never forget my amazement at how the film industry had so successfully, creatively fooled the American public. They could make anything look real. This is really going to date me, but they showed us the set for the $6 million man. (laughs) Any of you remember that? Let me see. Oh, I got a lot of old people in here. Wow. <laughs> Terrible acting, but I love that show, huh? Six million dollar man. They they showed us how he how how they made it look like he jumped to the top of a building. He's just standing there and the screen behind him had projected on it a building. And he'd jump and they'd scroll the building down and then he'd land. And of course, you look at that down, you realize he's not jumping to the top of that building. It's really bad, bad acting. At any rate, that was pretty slick back then. Our tour led us to a pond where Jaws was filmed. You remember that movie? That scared an entire generation back on the beach. Remember that? It was just the head, a plastic head of a shark that they'd covered with water-resistant paint. That was it. What struck me the most, however, on that tour was walking down a short alley and being shown Leave it to Beaver's Home. How many of you are old enough to remember that? Not quite as many. You remember that's where his dad wore a necktie, even cutting the grass, and <laughs> his mother cooked dinner in high heels and a dress. And, but she put on gloves, so there was a difference there. You remember that? You remember the opening to the show? The camera would pan. You know, I think they were running home from school or something, and it pans the neighborhood and their lawn, and then that big two-story house, and it was just the perfect setting, and he'd go through the front door. Well, we went to that. We saw that house and the houses next to it. They were nothing more than sheets of plywood nailed up, braced up, and a front door that opened into the back alley. If you went around to the back, as we did, you could see all the two-by-fours bracing the plywood facade that had been painted to look like home. It was inviting. It looked good, didn't it? It's the two-story house you'd want to have. Millions of people watched Beaver go through that front door. It was all make-believe. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan and his angels have done an incredible job presenting their versions of the gospel from the beginning of time. Life after death, how to wash away your sin, how to atone for your guilt, heaven, how to get there. It sounds real. It looks inviting. Babylon looks solid. It looks permanent. But when compared to Scripture, it's all make-believe. It is religious plywood propped up with counterfeit visions and false prophets and angels of light and plagiarized texts. And it is plywood thin. My friend, today you can believe those gospel tidings of any number of angels. I commend you to this angel in Revelation 14. And I will tell you that you have every reason to be concerned that you might be following the wrong gospel message. This gospel delivered by this messenger from God is the everlasting gospel created in the mind of our triune God before the foundation of the world, delivered 
once for all for you. This one, the founder, is alive, living. And the gospel both warns and assures, depending on who you are. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's a warning. But it's also assuring for those who've believed. Because there is no other name under heaven whereby we, we can be saved. What a wonderful word. I wonder if you have been saved by Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the message of this angel and and the clarifying certainty of the second angel who said the systems of the world will one day collapse. The props will be knocked out and down will come the kingdoms of this world. My friend, if you do not know Christ, you've never placed your faith in the Lord and Savior of this gospel. I have good news for you. Good tidings. The gospel is this. You can believe right where you sit. You can shift the allegiance of your heart from whatever speculation, whatever religion, whatever action you believe may have somehow washed your sins off your heart and you can give your sin to Christ. You can acknowledge him as creator, Lord, as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to join this church. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to give any money away. You don't have to turn over a new leaf. Those are good things to do. You don't have to do that. It's a gift from God to you, paid for entirely by his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Not of Caesar Augustus, who's long since been dead, not the gospel of Buddha who died. His bones inhabit a grave. Not the gospel of Joseph Smith. Though men are invited to believe in his name. He has a grave that's occupied. Thank you for the gospel that is eternal of our, of our Lord. And on this day we celebrate his resurrection. And his life. And we warn, Father, as you've asked us to, as we teach the counsel of God, that judgment is coming. And today is an opportunity to believe. And I pray those who do not believe will. Thank you for our faith that is certain, it is sure, it is built upon your written word and upon our living word, Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 